in this episode of the You Disciple podcast. And I cried out for another chance, not because I was sorry, I didn't even know what remorse was, but pure self-preservation, I did not want to go to hell. And as I cried out, I felt lifted up, and I said the first prayer I'd ever said. I said, up to now, all I've done is take from you, God. Now I want to give. And as I said that prayer, that emptiness which had always filled my heart was filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of God for me. You Disciple Podcast, where we unpack the ins and outs of Catholic life and explore how you can be a disciple on campus, in your parish, and in the world. Good afternoon, sister. Good afternoon, Father Nicholas. And we're very pleased to be joined by John Pridmore with us today. Yes, good afternoon. Good to see you. And this is the You Disciple Podcast, and we're back for another episode. Last episode, we were talking about the sacrament of confession, confession. Mm-hmm. and forgiveness. I know, John, that that plays an important part in, in your story and your life. So we really are looking forward to opening up on this topic with you today. But first and foremost, you've been here in Melbourne a few weeks visiting parishes and communities around the diocese. Yes, that's right. You've been to Melbourne before, though. Yes, I have a couple of times. As an outsider to this city, is there something that strikes you more than anything else? I just think the people are very friendly, very welcoming. I've been made very welcome by all the parishes and great witness, really. Yeah, God working in different parishes in different areas of Melbourne. And we spoke a couple of episodes ago about coffee. Have you found a good place to get a coffee in Melbourne? Actually, David, um, who's my uh, sort of host, he makes a good coffee. He's got uh-huh. one of those um, good coffee. Coffee machines. Uh-huh. So, so yes. So, so that's the best coffee I've had so far. Oh, there we go. It's like Italian coffee, which I love. Fantastic. So, John, your story is quite remarkable. For those of you who don't know any of it, tell us where it all began. Sure. Yeah, I was born in uh, the East End of London and I was baptised a Catholic but never brought up as a Catholic. Um, so I never went to Catholic school or church. At the age of 10, I came home a normal night and my parents told me that I had to choose who I wanted to live with because they were getting divorced. And I spent the two people I thought would always be there for me and that I could trust being there for me had crushed me inside. So I think I made, when I look back, I think I made an unconscious decision that I wasn't that love anymore because I really thought if you don't love, you don't get hurt. Um, my mum ended up having a nervous breakdown and went to psychiatric hospital and my dad remarried. And my stepmom, two families coming together, there was a lot of pain and a lot of violence. Really, my whole childhood, from being very serene, really, and gentle, turned into almost like a World War Three. And so I think that added to my pain. At the age of about 13, I started stealing because I wanted someone to take notice of the pain that I was in, like a cry for help, as you might say. And my dad was a policeman, so he added to the more aggravation because obviously it brought in great shame and that sort of thing. And maybe that was part of why I did it, because he was a policeman. But at 15, I was put in youth prison, and um, I thought it was better in prison than it was at home. So I left home at 15. My only qualification really was stealing, so that's what I did. At 19, I was in prison again, and there was another change in me. I think the way I dealt with all the abuse I suffered as a kid is I just turned that abuse into anger because then you kept people away from you. And um, so I was put on 23-hour solitary confinement, and it was a bit like having a mirror put in front of you. And because I hated what I saw in that mirror, I hated myself and the way I was living. I seriously thought about taking God's greatest gift, my own life. But God must have been there because I didn't take my own life. 
But I came out of there more angry and more bitter than ever. I suspect when you're caged like an animal, you start behaving like an animal. And I really thought what you want out of this world, you take, because no one gives you anything. And I started bouncing around the East End and West End clubs of London, and I met some guys who seemed to have everything. They had the best cars, the best girls. They walked into one of the clubs, and everyone stopped because they had disrespect, all for the wrong reasons. And I suspect in my naivety, I wanted that respect. I wanted that power. So I started working for these people. The first sort of job they give you is to they tell you where a Land Rover was at Dover, and one of the ports in England, and they give you a set of keys and you go and bring the Land Rover back to um, London. And I got paid five grand because it was obviously full of cocaine. Um, and but in a very short space of time, instead of you doing jobs for them, you were actually doing your own jobs and setting up your own jobs with your own contacts. And by the age of probably 22, I had a penthouse apartment, sports cars. I was earning so much money I couldn't spend it. So even on the outside, I seemed to have everything. But on the inside, there was this real emptiness. So to fill that emptiness, I I looked for what the world offers. I was on crack cocaine, smoking dope like it was going out of fashion, drinking really heavy, gambling, also very promiscuous. And I think that promiscuous lifestyle and that the drugs were really to ease my conscience. I think that desire to fill a hole with the things of this world would speak to a lot of young people and definitely speaks to me. I remember finishing school and there was this sense of a call from God in my life, but I wasn't ready for it. So I then looked at everything else that I thought was going to make me happy and tried to run in that direction, but there was still something lacking. I was on your mission just recently, just by accident. We ended up there and it was wonderful. And and then I started reading your book. I'm reading the things that you're doing, but I'm just seeing a, a hurt person. I'm not seeing someone with malice. I'm just seeing someone just moving from restless person. Not it's like, he's not a bad man. He's a good man. He's just not he just hasn't found his spot. I remember St. John Paul II said that the person who gives us the desire to search for him in our hearts is Jesus. Mm. And until we have that personal encounter with Jesus, then it doesn't matter how rich we are, how powerful we are, how famous we are, nothing is to fulfill us, nothing is to satisfy us. And I think that's what I was trying to feel that emptiness of not knowing God or understanding that God was there. That also it eases your conscience because you've got, you know, all of us have a conscience and we know that what we're doing, especially in my sort of lifestyle, that was every day was violence, every day was um, some sort of immorality. And so you try and kill that sort of voice that's telling you there's a better way of living. I, I remember one girl I lived with for six months. She knew no more about me the day she moved out than the day she moved in. Because even though people looked on me as being a hard man, I think inside I was a scared man. And a bit like you said, sister, that I, I was just um, very hurt. And so I wouldn't share my feelings with anyone in case I felt I'd get hurt again, like my parents had hurt me. I was working a club that we part-owned in the West End of London, and most of the nightclubs was where we moved all the drugs through. And this particular night, there was an underworld boss there. And in this lifestyle, you have to be the most violent, you have to be the most crazy, and the only thing you've got is your reputation. So you're always trying to impress, you know, the bosses that you're the, you know, the hardest, you're the... So I ended up hitting this guy purely to impress this boss who was there. And and I, I truly believed I killed him. And the thing that scared me the most is I didn't care. 
And and I, I as I was driving home, I thought he could be married, he could have children, and I just didn't care. The only person I was thinking about was me. I might get 10 years for this, for grievous bodily harm with intent, or if he's dead, I could be done for murder. And it's all self, do you know what I mean? And I think the only trinity at that point in my life that I was involved in was the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in this normal night. And I became aware of, the only way I can describe it is like a truck on my chest. And the amount of cocaine I was taking, it wasn't surprising that I was having a heart attack. But I also knew that there was a voice speaking to me and it was telling me the worst things I'd ever done, horrendous things. And I knew I was dying there and then and I knew I was going to hell. And it was like I was being propelled away from everything good, everything loving, which I hadn't even really noticed in my life. And this entity of goodness into this abyss. And it's the most, even thinking about it now or speaking it, my hands start sweating because it was absolutely terrifying. And I cried out for another chance, not because I was sorry. I didn't even know what remorse was, but pure self-preservation. I did not want to go to hell. And as I cried out, I felt lifted up. And I said the first prayer I'd ever said. I said, up to now, all I've done is take from you, God. Now I want to give. And as I said that prayer, that emptiness which had always filled my heart was filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of God for me. And I really think up to that point in my life that I was worthless. I I, I remember saying to a gangster friend of mine, there's only two ways we're in doubt. One's dead or the other's life imprisonment, and it doesn't matter. But in this moment, I knew it did matter because not only did God love me, but I knew somewhere in my heart that he had a plan for me. The only person I knew out of faith was my mum, and I didn't see a lot of her in them days. I might buy an expensive present when I felt guilty, but this night I went round and told her what had happened, and she said to me she had prayed for me every day of my life. I didn't know that. you know. I knew my mum prayed, but I didn't know she prayed every day for me. And she said nine days before this, she had prayed a novena, to the patron saint of hopeless cases, St. Jude. And it was on the ninth day of my mum's novena that I truly believe I heard the voice of God speak to me in my heart. And the tears rolling down her face as I told her I had found God, you know, probably washing away the pain and hurt I caused her. You were you were wounded and you were carrying these wounds and so you made this decision that if if I don't love, I won't get hurt anymore. As the years went on and as you tried to not love, you then came to this sense of emptiness. And I think that really speaks to that truth that if we can't open our hearts and love, then what will fill us? And all the pleasures of the world and all the good things that the world has to offer are never going to be enough to fill our hearts. You speak around the world in lots of different settings. Do you see this replicated in the lives of young people in particular today? Yeah, I do very much. I think that most young people are searching for some act of heroic virtue in their lives. They want something that they can really believe in and something that they can really stand up for. And I think until you give a young person some sort of identity and some self-worth, there is an emptiness in them. And even for those people who even say that they have some thought of faith, I thought it was interesting what you said, Father Nicholas, because I believe that some people who are being called to something greater in God, unless they answer that calling, there's still something missing. Mm. So you can even have a faith and you can be think you're walking along with God. But when he's calling you to something bigger, maybe a vocation, maybe something that he's created you for, and you're not you're not answering to that. I think there's also a big emptiness in that as well. 
We were talking this morning just about how there can be barriers to going forward, to actually fulfilling our mission, and that um, it takes a while for those to fall off or be put aside, um, and that they can be in our thinking, in our knowledge, or in our heart, or in our emotion. There can be all these sort of walls that we're putting up. I was also impressed in your story how sort of quickly you went from one to another. It was really a St. Paul flip, and then you explained some of the struggles that took longer. Also, I'm just fascinated how your life, you just kind of roll from one thing to another. I think you must be very docile to the Holy Spirit. I have learned how to listen to him, to his voice. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like what helps take those barriers away so that we can hear where he's calling us? Yeah, I think for me that one of the big things that um, I, I was never really present, do you know what I mean, even when I found God, that I think I was always thinking of the past or the future. And I think it was funny, uh, um, a nun, um, Sister Maria Nutella, um, she's quite well known in England. She asked me to visit her once and she, um, her father was in prison for life, you know, and she wanted me to pray with her about that. But then she gave me a book, which was The Shack, you know, oh, which yeah. is the famous film and all that. And I'm not really into reading books much. And I read this book and nothing really spoke. And then there was one line where Jesus takes this man to walk on the water. And he says, I can't walk on the water, I'm going to get wet. And Jesus says, you can walk on the water by living the moment. And that was the line that changed my life because when I started actually being present in the moment, not thinking of what I've got on next, not thinking, but being totally present here, mm. not only was I had a peace that has never gone or waned or disappeared, but I also had a real freedom to the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that's my key. You know, if I'm even slightly thinking of the future, then I'm in front of Our Lady saying, why am I worried about the future? And I want to be back here in mm. the moment now. And so that's the key for me to be mm. docile to the Holy Spirit, I think. Mm -hmm. I love um, the story of your mum because even in her own woundedness and her own struggles, she, she didn't give up on you and she prayed for you every day. And a novena sort of is obviously very powerful. What kind of woman was she? She's still probably she? one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, she's in London now and she's coming over to Ireland when I get back. But she goes to Mass every day. She's a very simple lady, but she just loves God. And, she, you know, my brother, he took his sort of pain differently. He was, like, very introverted, so he was alcoholic, suffered a bit of depression. But she never stopped praying for him either, and he's completely finished with drink and, you know, getting his life back together. And I think that she's just someone who really believes that eventually that it might take some time, but God will answer her prayer. So she just doesn't give up. And I think that her faith is very a simple faith, but a very powerful faith mm -hmm. of someone who really believes God is good mm -hmm. and will answer us our prayers, you know, if we keep persistently asking him. Some um, passage from Corinthians just came to me. And so faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Like, and I think her love sort of for you has really shown itself through, but it keeps coming up in your story as well. This openness to love and generosity. So even this question of responding to those bigger calls that God has takes that requirement to be able to love. Yeah, very and much. And I, I think a big changing point in my life was that obviously I knew God was real, 
And my stepdad gave me a Bible and I started, I really think I found Jesus. It was a New Testament, King James, where all Jesus' words were in red. And I really think I found Jesus in that Bible. But then I was invited to a retreat. And my idea of a retreat was like, as I was saying at the mission, the Bacardi Breeze, a joint nice girl, just chilling for a couple of weeks. And after all this emotional stress, I thought I could do the holiday. But I goes to this retreat and it was a youth retreat and there was about 200 150 young people on it but the first talk was by a priest and it was give me your wounded heart and I just remember as the priest spoke I was just transfixed at this crucifix and I really understood from what he was saying that every sin we've ever committed Jesus gladly carried in his heart to that crucifixion and it was almost like a personal thing because it was like Jesus saying to me John I love you so much I would die over and over again for you and yeah even now I get emotional because to have that personal I always when you think of Jesus dying you think of him dying and saving the world but he wasn't saving the world he was saving me Mm. he was saving you sister or (laughs) father Nicholas and I just think that one act of love I can honestly say for the first time in 17 years I haven't cried a tear from the age of 10 till that talk and at that talk I just was uh, bawling my eyes out one of the most powerful things I've ever had spoken to me on a retreat was a priest who once said at the cross he knew every sin you have ever committed and you will ever commit beautiful yeah yeah and and I came out of that talk And I said a prayer to Our Lady because somewhere in that talk, the priest had really let me know that Our Lady was purely there for one reason, for the very best for me. And I suspect I never had the problem believing that because my mum was always looking for the best for me. And, And that best is obviously Jesus. And so when I came out, I just said, Blessed Mother, what is it that your son wants me to do? And I felt a whisper in my heart go to confession. And I'd never been to confession in my life. I'm 27 years old. I think I've broken every commandment there is. And I'm feeling so, like, trapped that I can never be forgiven for what I've done. You know, all this burdensome sin is all over me. And I I had all these thoughts of why I should not go to confession, like what the priest might think of me, everything. And I just got this real clarity, and I think it was Our Lady again, it was almost like her saying that there's only one person who doesn't want you to go to confession. Listen to his lies or listen to my son's truth. And because of that incident in the flat, where I truly believed I'd been listening to his lies all my life, and the response to that was hell, I knew <laughs> that I wanted that freedom. So I went to confession. I'll never forget it. I was there over an hour. And I didn't want to look up at the priest because of what he would be thinking of me because I had left nothing out. But when I did look at him, he had tears rolling down his face and he was Jesus to me. You know, he wasn't judging me. And you could tell he was so pleased that I had tasted that freedom that the sacrament of confession had given me. And it was like the I could feel the wind on my face. I could hear the birds singing. It was I was alive again and the sinner killed me. But so any listeners out there, you might feel trapped or you might feel that. But confession to me was one of the greatest freedoms I've ever experienced. And I experience it often, not because I'm holy, but because I'm a sinner. You know, I went to confession at the mission last night and I, I just feel that freedom and that embrace of the father every time i go i just really you know the priest is there to bring us that merciful love of god 
and and he's like um, in the place of Christ. But he's rejoicing when we're really open and really honest in confession because he realizes the freedom we're receiving. I, I was noticing at the mission how many people went. You had so many good motivations to go and people really did get up and move. And I think one of them you were saying, uh, I don't know which saint you were quoting, but about anything that is said in confession is blotted out forever. And it just doesn't. Yeah, you were saying saint something about Festina. it. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, saint Festina, her spiritual director, who was quite a learned priest, he said, well, she said that Jesus was appearing to her. And he said, well, ask Jesus what my worst sins were. Mm-hmm. And the next time she comes to spiritual direction, he said, what did Jesus say? And she said, Jesus says he has no recollections of your sins because you confessed them. They no longer exist. Yeah. So he doesn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the first saint who St. John Paul II beatified. Right. So it's guaranteed by the church, mm-hmm. completely eradicated from the book of life, from God's memory, from earth. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, it's just uh, such a grace confession. Mm-hmm. So your mum's been praying for you. Um you have this encounter with the Lord in your heart that sort of spurs you on. You make your way to a retreat. Can you remember the journey from, say, the the chapel to the confessional? Because sometimes that's the that's the biggest step for a young person to make. Like they 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 can get themselves close to the Lord and they can hear the Lord, but that final step over the threshold of the confessional. Yeah, at the retreat, I heard that talking. It actually was in a tent. The chapel was a tent, you know, where we had mass and everything. But then I walked down to the village and I was just talking to Our Lady, really, because I just didn't feel worthy to speak to God. But I did feel worthy to speak to Our Lady because I felt she was human and um, as she is. And I just, when I was talking, I really felt her say, clearly go to confession. So when I went back to the retreat, it was in the monastery and I just walked up to the first priest I saw and said, would you have my confession, Father? And I remember he looked in my eyes and he said, yes. And actually it was Father Slavko from Medjugorje, who was quite a famous priest, but I didn't know he was famous. I just walked up to the first priest. And me and him became quite good friends, actually. And we did quite a few missions and things together. And years and years later, I said to him, Father, do you remember you was the first priest I ever went to confession to? And he said, John, I've been a priest for over 30 years. I never, ever remember a confession. But yours, I'll never <laughs> So I must have had some effect on him. But, yeah, so that was really the, the, the thing with me is I think deep down, because I had seen what the consequence of my sin was, that I, I, if there was a way of getting rid of it, I was there, you know. I wanted to get rid of it. And obviously the journey out of confessional leads us to the Eucharist. And I know that the Eucharist played an important part of that retreat for you as well. Yeah, very much because I hadn't been brought up as a Catholic. And literally the next thing after I'd been to confession was mass. And I just said to one guy, I remember, <laughs> like adoration. They had um, Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament walk across the field at one point and everyone was kneeling. And I thought they are kneeling because the priest was Jesus. Oh. because But he was too old, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then this guy said, no, no, he's in the monstrance in the Blessed Sacrament. And I said, but he looks like bread. And he said, you I felt like that, but I just asked him. And he said, at this mass, just ask him. He said, you might need confession. I said, I've just been to confession. And he said, well, just ask him. And I asked him, and all I can say is that every good feeling um, in my life that I felt I was being propelled away from was given to me in the Eucharist. It was like in the same way that I think I tasted hell in that um, flat, 
in the Eucharist, I tasted heaven. And I didn't want to come back. Wherever I was, I was in so much ecstasy. I just didn't want to come back. And when I did come back, I knew two things. I knew that I'd be a Catholic till the day I died. And I had an infused knowledge that everything the church taught was the utter truth of God. It was just infused. I had no problem with any, because that's where Jesus dwelt, in every tabernacle in the Catholic Church throughout the world. So, yeah, they were the two things that that incident with the Eucharist gave me. What piece of advice would you give to a young person who who's listening today who resonates with your story but still struggles with the idea of making their way back to the confessional and to the sacraments? Give God a chance. Give him everything. You know, really make that point of making a really good confession and then going to maybe a Eucharistic retreat, a holy hour. I know that in the cathedral there's holy hours once a month. Um, and they're once, led. once a week. Oh, sorry, once a week, <laughs> which they're led. And also, if you can't, you know, just go into any Catholic church and sit there with Jesus the, because he's there in the tabernacle. I always say that, you know, a lot of people put a lot of effort in the world and what it offers. Some of my gangster friends, they used to spend literally hours and hours every day training, you know, to make their bodies so beautiful and muscles and, you know, eating spaghetti, band spaghetti and stuff like that. And I thought if they had the same dedication as being a saint, they'd be saints. There would be no doubt. And I think give God everything for those young people out there. Don't just dip your foot in, but actually jump in and, you know, pray the rosary every day, go to mass every day, go to confession once a week and just watch how your life is transformed into something in the words of Saint Mother Teresa more beautiful than you could ever understand or imagine because that's what I've got and I tell you what I give God he gives me a billion times more back. I think you were sharing some stories about beginning to try and respond to the Holy Spirit and and get on that journey. You've received all this grace and how we can be afraid of stepping out into a comfort zone. Or I think even in your book, you share about being a closet Catholic and having to actually publicly stand for your faith is a a part of that journey out on mission. There's one thing that I felt, I don't normally share this in public, but um, I felt that I should share it. That um, I ended up going to um, New Zealand probably about a year after I spoke at World Youth Day for Cardinal Pell um, in Sydney. And um, there was a, a nun there called Mother Dorothea in Christchurch who was an enclosed Carmelite. And she had got me a few talks, even though she was enclosed. And I had the honour of going in and visit her. And um, when I visited her on this day, she asked me why now I spoke all over the world, whereas when she first got to know me, I only spoke in Ireland and England. And I said, well, when I came back from World Youth Day, one of my friends prayed over me and he got this picture of the world and me going around the world lighting these flyers. And the words he got was, you're set my world ablaze with the Holy Spirit. And then all these invitations came in, so I started going. And she got very emotional. And she, I said, are you all right, mother? And she said, no. She said, when I joined Carmel 25 years ago, that was seven years before I was converted. I'm going to get emotional here. But she said that I had two weeks of silence. Um, when you join, you get two weeks retreat. And she said, it was like Jesus walking around with me. And he said, I want you to pray for someone who is the set my world ablaze with the Holy Spirit. Even at the moment, he's doing evil, terrible things. But through your prayers, he will be brought out of that evil. And I truly believe that a big part of not just my mum's prayers, but a big part of Mother Dorothea was praying for me seven years before I was converted. And she said, when I was to meet you, I was to tell you that every time you do a talk, 
you're to call upon Saint Therese of Lisieux. Which you do. To, to bring down the fire of the Holy Spirit from heaven so that we might be ablaze with that same spirit. And ever since I've been doing that, I think two things have happened. One is that that little whisper that we get becomes so much more clear to me and I always try and respond to it. And the other thing that I get is that I just seem to have this great grace of being able to be in the present. As I was saying to you before, I just think that to be in the present and not in the future or the past, you know, that famous saying, leave the past to God's mercy, leave the future to God's providence and live the now in his love. Mm-hmm. And if I'm living in the now, I really can be open to that Holy Spirit. And I've had a lot of, you know, one um, sister, I was telling her how I felt that I hadn't been open to the Holy Spirit on one <laughs> occasion and she roasted me alive. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought I was going around there to be, a, you know, um, get rid of this guilt, but she actually made it worse. <laughs> and she said, when only good can come of it, always do it. Mm. When only good can come of it, always do it. And and I've never forgot that. So, and, you know, I think anything we practice, we become better at it. And as long as we practice saying yes to those little whispers of the Holy Spirit, it becomes second nature to us and we can't, you know, almost we can't refuse it. John, your book is From Gangland to Promised Land. So My first one, yeah. Your first one. Four. We're gonna we're gonna continue this conversation because we've we've just started, but <laughs> thank you for sharing your story with us and really encouraging our listeners to really be open to love and the love that God has for them and that there's really no no boundaries, no barriers to the love of God. Whether you've been listening to us on the tram, in the library, or on your way to work, thanks for listening to the You Disciple podcast. Share, like, and subscribe, and we hope to see you around Melbourne. Disciple Podcast is a production of the Catholic Archdiocese of Melbourne.